Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Good morning, church. It is so great to be with you. To those in the room with me, uh, to those who are watching online or listening online, if you're uh, on a podcast or YouTube, however you got here, we're so glad that you are a part of this as well. Uh, My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're thrilled that you are here today. Now, we've been going through a series through the Gospel of John, uh, but today is going to be special. We're going to do a a special standalone weekend. Uh, It is, uh, you know, on Monday is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I thought I would love to spend a weekend sharing some of the quotes uh, from Dr. King that I have found particularly moving. And to do that, we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament uh, that I think will will help us uh, look at all of these ideas together today. So I want to encourage you, if you've got your journals and you brought them with you, uh, you can get those out. And this is going to be confusing, I know. It says John, but if you go to week three, it still counts. You can still use it. Uh, You can write names in it. You can do all that. And so I encourage you, uh, use week three. You'll see a date there, uh, which is this weekend's date. Uh, And you can write that down. Now, if you want to write down the title of today's message, it is Sheep Among Wolves. And if you want to know, hey, what message were we talking about, uh, you can write that title there in week three. And then if you brought your Bible with you today, hopefully you did, we're going to be in Exodus chapter one. Now, if you've got a physical Bible, uh, that's all the way back to the beginning. Go Genesis, then Exodus, get chapter one. So uh, I know some of you gotten a little custom to uh, John. So you thought, oh, I don't have to look up any other books. But I'm gonna keep you on your toes. We're not in John today. We're gonna go to Exodus. We'll be back in John next week. Exodus chapter one, if you've got a Bible app on a phone or device, encourage you to get that out as well. And while you're turning there, uh, let me give you a little bit of setup. Today we're gonna look at uh, part of uh, the Exodus story, hence the name of the book, uh, where God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, at this point, uh, the Israelites are living within Egypt. They're living under Pharaoh's rule. And uh, there was a guy named Joseph that had come before them, and that's a story in the book of Genesis. And, and so now they're just, they're doing well, things are, are going well, and they're thriving but Pharaoh realizes he's got a problem because the Israelites are getting too numerous and he begins to realize they could be a threat to his empire. And so he decides, I gotta figure this out and, and he makes all the Israelite slaves to the Egyptians. And this is like his way of keeping them in check, but God continues to prosper them. They continue to, to multiply and Pharaoh's like, well, that didn't solve the problem. I have to get more aggressive. And so in, in the beginning of chapter one, we see Pharaoh's solution uh, to his problem how he's going to address this. And here's what you're gonna realize. If you've heard the Exodus story, you might be thinking of a guy named Moses and this battle he has with Pharaoh where he let my people go. It's this big dramatic thing. What we're gonna read today is all before that, okay? So this is what leads us to that iconic moment. But I wanna invite you to go with me into Exodus chapter one. We begin reading in verse 15. And rather than uh, just seeing a story that, that maybe you've heard before, maybe you've never heard before, you're like, oh, that's an obscure story a long time ago in a totally different culture. I want us to put ourselves in the story to figure out what would we do in a similar situation. So here's what Exodus chapter one, verse 15 says. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. Now, imagine 
You're a Hebrew midwife, you are helping the other Hebrew women deliver babies, and then you are told, if you see a boy uh, getting delivered, you must kill the boy. What do you do? Now, oftentimes we read stories like this, we're like, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to make those kind of decisions. Uh, but when you are told something, and again, understand, this is the law, this is what they are told. This is the decree of the land, Pharaoh has the right to decide this, and yet they know this isn't right. And so much is hinging on what they do in this moment. Now, now there's oftentimes in life where a story can go a dramatically different way depending on the decision you make in a moment. The challenge is it's easier to see in someone else's story. When you are in the moment and you're that person, it's hard to know, hey, how much is riding on what I do right here? This is why if you've ever watched a scary movie and you found yourself yelling at the TV, Anybody, right? Like, don't go into the house. Oh, that's terrible. Because you know what they should do. They don't know, but it's hard when it's your own story. Now, let me illustrate this another way. Uh, I was trying to think of well-known stories that, that a lot of us would know that could have ended differently. Uh, so by show of hands, uh, wherever you're at, uh, how many of you, you love the, the Disney movie, The Little Mermaid? Got any Little Mermaid fans? All right, you're gonna love this. So uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you're like, I don't remember that. That was a long time ago. Here's the basic plot line. I'm gonna butcher some of this, but here we go. Uh, you got like a Romeo Juliet type story. You got a mermaid. You got a guy named Eric. He's a human. She saves him. They kind of have this like love thing. Uh, and then she's trying to get to him, but she has, you know, I was gonna say flippers. It's a tail, I guess, right? Uh, she's got a tail. I'm already butchering this. Uh, and, and she can't get to him. And so there's this evil witch. And the evil witch gives Ariel the ability to have feet and go see Eric. But she has to give up her voice to do it. Okay, so that, that's the basic plot line. You're welcome. Now, here's the deal. <laughs> If you get to this, you're going, oh man, so much. Like, uh, if she could have just told Eric, if she could have just sung to him, he would know that she's the one. There's lots of other ways this story could have played out. L let me show you. You ready for this? I'm the one who rescued you. <laughs> like, written out because she lost her voice, not her hand. Like, right, like you're going, wow, this story could have been so much simpler Anybody else, it's just me, I have issues, I get it. Like, I'm going, wow, that, that could have been a very simple story, like, hey, yeah, I, I'm the one, just give me a pencil and, a, and uh, some paper, I'll tell you I'm the one, but she doesn't, so you have this whole long thing where there's like tension and all that, and, and that's what makes the story. All because of what happens in a moment and, and how it could have played out differently. Or how about this, uh, how many of you fans of The Lion King? Okay. Not as excited, fans of Lion King, all right? Uh, so Lion King, uh, you've got you know, Simba, uh, he's growing up, his dad's Mufasa, but then his uncle Scar kills his dad, uh, and, and Simba doesn't know what to do about it, so he runs away, and he grows up in the wild, far from everyone he knows, and then has this triumphal return, and it's the whole plot of the movie, right? But you're thinking, that could have been so much simpler if you just would have said, hey, he killed Mufasa, right? Like, oh yeah, makes sense, totally believe it. He was singing a song to like a thousand hyenas yesterday. I mean, like the movie would have been so much easier. Just tell everybody, why are you running off, you know, eating berries and stuff? Like, just go to, I don't know. So here's the deal. I look at these stories, all. this is my problem if I read stories in, you know, fiction or I watch a movie and I'm like, really? Really, this is how this story's gonna play out because there's so much that happens in one moment and, and, and there's so much power there. But here's the problem. Uh, we have the same writing on the decisions you and I make, but we don't see them. 
We just think, oh, it's just another moment, just another thing, just another day. Uh, and so maybe we think like, oh, how am I gonna make 2020 amazing? Or maybe we think, hey, I wanna make the next 10 years of my life amazing. Those are all great things. But how are you gonna make this moment what it's supposed to be? How are you gonna see what's happening this moment, what is there in front of you? I think God gives all of us moments. And these are like holy, sacred moments where you and I can say yes to what God wants to do. And if you say yes, dramatically different things happen in your story. And this is what we find with these two Hebrew midwives. They are told something, they have a job to do, and they have a moment. What do we do? And literally the, the entire future of the Israelites is resting upon what these two Hebrew midwives decide to do in this moment. So let's go back to Exodus 1. Let's see what they do. Verse 17. But because the midwives feared God. Now, they're not afraid of God. What that means is they have a greater respect for God than they do for Pharaoh, which is an important thing to remember. They refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? Can you imagine? You actually follow your conscience, you do what you think is right, and then you're caught. And then Pharaoh brings you in. Explain to me why you've done this. Now again, if we are willing to put ourselves in, into this story, into a similar situation, there's some questions that we could ask ourselves. How far are we willing to, to go in our pursuit of Jesus? How far are we willing to go uh, to, to, to be faithful to what God has before us? Are we willing to break the law if you felt like that's what you had to do to follow Jesus? Are you willing to get arrested if that's what it meant for you to follow Jesus? See, now, the, the challenge is a lot of us, we don't have to worry about that, and so we don't worry about that, but you, you gotta wrestle with what would you do in a moment like this? Now, you, you can imagine these, these Hebrew midwives thinking, if we don't come clean here, if we don't try to salvage this, this could be really bad for us. I mean, Pharaoh is already you know, wanting to kill all these, these boys. He for sure is gonna kill us, and probably in a very painful way. But again, I, I can't help but think of uh, one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, where he said this, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life for the welfare of others. See, the, the hard part for you and I is we often uh, measure ourselves in moments of comfort. Right? I don't have to worry about that. This is who I am. This is what I would do. But what would you do when you're not comfortable, when you have to make that hard decision? And, and could you envision it now before you get there so you're not cut off guard? Could you decide now, this is what I would do, and, and then hope that you'd have the courage to live up to your answer? You see, the, what Dr. Martin Luther King knew is that if you are going to truly treat someone else as a neighbor, it will cost you something. And indeed, he, he paid a steep price for the ways in which he loved his neighbors. And this is why, as a church, our mission statement is that we are giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Because we have seen the connection between you experiencing the good news is likely gonna cost me something. I have to be willing to live my life to the gospel to, to make it good news for you. And if I don't care uh, about sacrificing myself, it will have a much harder time ever looking like good news for you. 
And so these midwives have a decision to make. Do they try to salvage this? Do they keep loving their neighbor, all these uh, Hebrew boys? What do they do? Now this is where it gets a little bit tricky. They decide we're going to lie. And I wanna show you this lie because it's a beauty, right? Uh, so go to, back to chapter one, go to verse 19. Here's their response to Pharaoh. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied, and this is, this is so creative. They are more vigorous and they have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. Isn't that a beautiful lie? Like they're like, hey, hey, uh, how, how do we come up with this? I don't know. Let's like talk about how these women, like, you know. So they come up with this like, whole thing that devise this whole plan. Uh, okay, so you're going, oh man, they lied to Pharaoh. God is not gonna be happy about this. You ready? Verse 20. So God was good to the midwives and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. This is where a lot of Christians are like, ooh. So they lied, and then God rewarded them for it. This is when, when you like bring your kids into Bible reading, you're like, no, skip that part, guys. Like, let's just move over that, because I don't know how to explain that to you, right? Like, this is what we call ethics. And ethics are what do you do when the answer isn't as clear? And we love, and again, like to use King's phrase, we look at those moments of comfort where, where everything's really easy to decide. But what do you do when it's not as easy? How do you navigate that? Whenever I think about ethics, I think about a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor. Uh, he was a theologian. Uh, he was a professor. Uh, he, he was a German. And he happened to be alive during the rise of Hitler. And so as he is following Jesus, as he's teaching on what it means to follow Jesus, he has all of these ethical uh, conundrums all around him as the majority of the German church begins to follow Hitler as well. And he's got to decide, how do I faithfully follow God? How do I faithfully navigate this? And he has to uh, pay a huge price for many of the decisions that he made. Well, he wrote a book called Ethics that, uh, if you're interested in this topic, I, I would heartily recommend. Uh, but in that book, he, he presents a, an interesting dilemma, which is unusual for us to consider, but if you go back to Nazi Germany, was something that many people had to wrestle with. And, and, and let me paraphrase his argument, okay? Essentially, he says this. Imagine that you were one of the Germans who decided you were going to uh, illegally harbor uh, and keep some Jews in your house. You were gonna defend them. You were gonna hide them. You were gonna try to save their lives. Now imagine that you had Jews living somewhere secretly in your home and a Nazi uh, official comes to your door and he asks you, are there any Jews in your home? What do you do? Now here's where you realize you have an ethical dilemma because there's not an easy answer to that question. Uh, you, you can say, um, well, yes, the, the truth is I, I do have Jews, but then you know what that's going to mean uh, to these Jews. Or you can lie, which you think I'm not supposed to lie, but then that would actually be the way to protect and defend this life. This is uh, where ethics come in. How do you navigate between these two, the two of these? And what Bonhoeffer tried to get his fellow Germans and anyone who reads his works to understand is that truth-telling has to be about more than just restating a fact. And so the fact is, yes, there might be a Jew living in my home, but is that what it means to tell the truth, that I have to give you a factual answer, or is there something greater there, especially to those of us who call ourselves Christians, who are gonna follow Jesus? 
And so I want to give you a, a, a bit of his argument. Now, even this abbreviated version is still pretty heady, so you might want to write this down and stare at it uh, throughout the week. It might take you a little bit of time. Uh, this is incredibly profound to consider how did Bonhoeffer navigate moments like these where it's a little bit tricky to figure out how do I follow Jesus? Okay, so here is a part of Bonhoeffer's argument. He said, it is precisely in the responsible acceptance of guilt that a conscience which is bound solely to Christ will best prove its innocence. Now, hang with me. If I lost you, are like, what are we talking about? Okay, hold on. So what he's talking about here, and I can explain it this way. Imagine that there are two different truths uh, to use his situation. Now, one truth is, yes, uh, that family may be illegally harboring Jews in their home, okay? So that is the truth. So when the official says, are you, you know, are there Jews in this home? Uh, it would be a lie to say otherwise. Well, that would be what Bonhoeffer would call a responsible acceptance of guilt. He, he's acknowledging, I'm, I'm choosing uh, the consequences of this guilt. I'm saying this lie because to him, there's another truth, which is that the Nazis don't have a right to kill the Jews. And that truth is a greater truth because uh, his conscience is bound to Christ. And so because of that truth, he navigates it and he takes a, a willingness to assume guilt in, in this other area. And so again, when you're presented with those two truths, this is how Bonhoeffer, who's an incredible Christian, decided this is how we navigate it in real time. Now, some of you are like, okay, my head is hurting. I'm trying to process this. This is a little, not what I normally do. Let me break it down using a, uh, a proverbial illustration that, that I think we can all understand. Imagine a husband and wife and the wife comes in to the husband and says, hey, dear, do you think this outfit makes me look good? <laughs> Some of you have been there, right? Now, for the sake of this argument, and again, this is just an illustration, uh, but essentially you could have the same thing happening on a much smaller level. The husband could be thinking, well, I think my wife is always beautiful, and I love my wife, and I always want to speak edifying words to my wife because I value her so much. That could be a truth. A second truth could be he hates the outfit, right? Like that could be, and so he's gotta have to decide. Do I say truthfully, hey, I don't really actually like that outfit, knowing what it might do ultimately to his wife? Or does he say, well, man, that is so much more important than whether or not I like this outfit. Does he go to that? Now, again, these are things that you and I navigate all the time, and we're used to that. But when, when it comes to following Jesus, we, we often don't know. We're like, I, I don't know what I would do. I don't know how to navigate it. And so you have to look to Christians who have come before, look to, to the scriptures and go, how have others navigated this? How have others got into this dilemma? How do they follow God in the midst of a situation that gets tricky? Now go back to Exodus, and, and so we just read part of chapter one. If you keep going, it's to chapter two, and you get to another, uh, even more like unbelievable story of this would never play out like this in a million years, and yet it does. Go with me to Exodus chapter two. I wanna show you in verse one, uh, the very next thing that happens after these two Hebrew midwives decide uh, to defy Pharaoh, then you, you see others following their example. It says, about this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now remember, this is bad news if you're giving birth to a son because the law of the land is you are to kill this boy. So what does she do? She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. And you can only imagine these Hebrew midwives are a part of this plot. They are helping her out, helping her to hide this baby. But when she could no longer hide him, 
She got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. Now you may read this and maybe you've read the story before and you go, how could any mother do that, right? Here's what you have to understand. This is a moment of desperation. This is a mother who's realizing, if I announce that I have this son, they will kill him. And she is doing the most creative thing she can think of to give her son a chance at life. And so again, from a position of comfort, we can go, oh, I wouldn't have done that. You should have done it differently. But this is her in the moment figuring out how do I defy the law of the land and try to protect my child. So she sends him down this river, and this is like, what are the odds that this story is gonna play out well? I mean, this is not going to go well. The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon, Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. Now, at this point, you're going, that is the worst person possible, someone who's directly connected to Pharaoh, of course. This is like the worst person that could possibly get this. This story is not going to end well. When the princess opened it, verse six, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Can you even imagine how fast her heart is beating, uh, hoping beyond all hope, maybe I can save my brother a little bit longer. His sister approaches the, the princess. Should I go? And find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? What a helpful bystander, right? She asked. <laughs> yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother, which is her mother as well. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. She's now getting paid to raise her own child through the person whose family said that she had to kill her child. I mean, this is like one of those crazy, crazy stories. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her own son. I mean, this is like the most unlikely uh, situation ever. The princess named him Moses. For she explained, I lifted him out of the water. So begins one of the most grand, dramatic salvation narratives in the entire Old Testament as God supernaturally shows up to deliver his people, the Israelites. And it starts with these women. Now, as I look at this story, uh, there's a couple observations that I, I find incredibly significant as takeaways uh, from what we just read. Number one, it wasn't about the people in power. I want you to notice, it wasn't like, and then these, these great leaders of groups and, and cities and the mayors and the, the, you know, the, it wasn't. It was these, like, no-name people except for this text named a few of them, right? Like, you wouldn't know who these midwives are. They're just midwives. Like, they're not power brokers in that culture. That this whole story is put in motion by those who on every level do not look like they have the power. That's an incredible uh, observation. The second observation is this. Women led the way. 
Now, why is that significant? Well, uh, even today, we live in a male-dominated culture, but this was way more true uh, at this point in history. You would not expect, if you were writing this story, how is this going to play out well? Well, you would not have your main characters, your heroes, be women, because that makes it incredibly unlikely. And yet, that's how the story played out. And you, you, you see the setup for this whole thing of how God is going to uh, deliver the Israelites and it all happens with some women who did not have the power in that culture. Which reminds me of something that uh, Dr. King said. He said, almost always, the creative, dedicated minority has made the world better. That's an incredible perspective. Almost always, it's a creative, dedicated minority. It's not the power brokers, it's not the ones that you expect. He said, yeah, you and I, we go, oh, I would love to be a part of making this world better, but I just... I'm not significant, I don't have the power, I don't have the leadership, I don't have the credentials, I don't have the influence. No, but what those who are actually changing the world have noticed, that it's often not the likely people that end up changing history forever. And so as I was reflecting on this, I couldn't help but think about Rosa Parks. And if you know the story of Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks was riding the bus one day, and, and, and at that time, the, the law was that there was a, a set amount of rows for, for white people in the front of each bus. And, and so Rosa Parks didn't sit in that section. She sat in the section right behind it, the row right behind it. She was following the law. And so the, the white people came, they, they filled up the bus, but then there was more of them. And so the assumption was, well, you take the next row, and then you take the next row, as many as needed uh, for those who have higher value to get a seat. And, and in her row, which was the very next row, uh, there's four of them. Three other people got up and moved. Rosa said, no, I'm not gonna move. And she decided, uh, I'm going to risk whatever this means because this is not right even though this is the law, even though this is the way things work. And, and the, the bus driver came and threatened her and caused this whole scene and said, you're gonna get arrested for this. She goes, do what you need to do. And then later she recorded the conversation and she said that she asked the officer who arrested her and took her off the bus. She said, why do you push us around? This was his response. I don't know, but the law's the law and you're under arrest. I don't know, but I was told to do this, and the law's the law. And, and you see a very different uh, response to, one of them is literally just saying, I was told to do this, I'm doing it. And the other one has a greater sense of what is happening, has a stronger allegiance to something bigger, and she's the one that forever changed history. Now, what you have to realize is, and this is one of the ways we often uh, misunderstand the story, is we think, oh, it just happened to be she was tired and she just was uh, at the right place at the right time. That's not, uh, that's not accurate. Uh, and if you look at the details of Rosa Parks, she was a part-time secretary for E.D. Nixon, who was a local black activist. So she worked with him. She was a uh, member of the NAACP, and she was trained for civil disobedience at the Highland Folk School in Tennessee. She was prepared for a moment like this. In fact, as she told the story, she said this in her own words. People always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. I was tired of saying this isn't the way it should be, and I'm not gonna keep going along with it. That's what I was tired with. Now, as you look at these stories today, you might think, Good thing injustice only happened in the past, right? Uh, 
So then we go, what, what role do we have in this? What role do those of us in positions of comfort have when, when it comes to realizing stories like this? Well, I wanna give you a question. I encourage you to write this question down. It's not, a, it's not an easy question. It's not a fun question. But here's something I think every single one of us has to wrestle with. What is wrong around us and what does Jesus want you to do about it? That is a dangerous question to ask. So dangerous that most Christians don't ask this question. I don't wanna know. I don't wanna know what's wrong around me. I wanna close my eyes to it. And I don't wanna feel any sense of responsibility of what Jesus might want me to do about it. So we don't ask that question. But if you ask this question, it is an invitation that to Jesus to go, hey, I wanna participate in what you're doing. I wanna participate in this bigger story that you're unfolding. What is wrong around us? And what does Jesus want you to do about it? I think every single one of us need to prepare ourselves for a God moment. God, if you put me in a moment, I wanna be ready for it. I I wanna be prepped for it. I wanna be mentally prepared so that I can be faithful to say yes to whatever you want to do through my life. Now, you might be going, well, what are we talking about injustice? Well, a couple weeks ago, we rolled out that as a church, the way we are focusing our efforts uh, you know, to serve uh, those outside of our church is through canaries. Now, again, this goes back to if you were here a couple weeks ago, you can watch this whole thing. But canaries are uh, in a mine. It goes back to the way they would do mining, that the canary would be the early indicator that something was wrong. Well, we have, uh, as a church, has concluded that vulnerable and displaced people in the culture are the early indicators of whether a culture is healthy, whether it is thriving, or whether it is in uh, for bad times. And so what we're saying as a church is we're gonna care about the canaries even when most of our culture will say, no, don't. They they don't have the same value. And we as a church are gonna say uh, otherwise. And so we're going, well, who is this? Again, I wrote this out a couple weeks ago. Those who are vulnerable would be the poor, widows, foster children, and orphans. Just a few examples of uh, those who would be incredibly vulnerable and, and are suffering from injustice in a variety of ways. And so we're gonna say, hey, as a church, we could, we could do something for them. We, we could care, we could have a heart for them the way Jesus does. And then as displaced, uh, those would be immigrants, refugees, those who have been or are at risk of being trafficked for sex, and those living on the streets or in shelters. And so again, as a church, we're gonna look, these are some injustices we see And we can either decide we're gonna operate in a position of comfort or we're gonna ask a bold question, Jesus, what's wrong around us and what do you want us to do about it? You might be thinking, I thought Jesus was like all loving and like this is is kind of like a little bit edgy there. And here's the deal, I don't know if you've realized, but if you follow Jesus' teachings, there's a number of things he said. Uh, This should concern us a little bit if we're gonna be honest. For example, let me show you. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says this, look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. Now, that's a lot of animal imagery there. I get it, right? Uh, But how many of you are pumped to be a sheep among wolves? Raise your hands. Yeah, uh, not me. I'm like, wait, what? Can we pick other animals? Like, I don't 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 like this. I don't want this. That's what our option is. Now, it would be bad enough if Jesus said, Hey, come here, here's the deal. Um, if you follow me, it's, it's gonna kind of feel like you're a sheep among wolves. That'd be like, oh, Jesus, really? I gotta think this through. <laughs> but it's worse than that. I am sending you out as sheep 
among wolves. I'm going to put you in situations where you'll be the sheep and you're gonna be all around wolves. Go for it, get ready. So, well, how do we do that? I don't know, Jesus, I don't know. I don't know how to be a sheep among wolves. How do I do it? He's like, all right, I got you, I got you. Uh, so be as shrewd as a snake and as harmless as a dove. To which I wonder if any of the disciples said, hey, Jesus, have you ever seen a snake and a dove? Like, do you, do you know how different those two animals are? Now, just for fun, I tried to Google, uh, you know, pictures of like snakes and doves hanging out together. <laughs> they don't exist. It's not a thing, right? Uh, and so you have to go to artistic rend renditions of this because no one has seen this. So here's what this may look like, right? Of like, what does a sheep and a dove look like when the sheep isn't, or the snake isn't eating the dove? You know, like, how does that look like? It's a little bit weird and even to imagine this. But this is the image that Jesus gives us when we ask, how do we be a sheep among a wolf? Okay, just do this. Combine like a snake and the wisdom of that, but don't like attack people like a snake. You're gonna be as harmless as a dove. Ugh, okay, that's, that's weird. Um, and here's what I think most of us do. You ready? Most of us, pick one. That's what we do. Like, pick the one you like best and be that. And so there's a bunch of Christians who are kind of snaky, right? And uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You met them. And you're like, wow, that, and they bit me and that hurt. And it's like, ow, like that's, that's bad. And you're like, well, but they're, they're biting you for Jesus. So it's okay, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not bad. There's other people who are like, I'm not doing that. I'm just gonna be as harmless as a dove. I'm just gonna stand aside. I'm just gonna love everybody. I'm just gonna love everybody. I'll never get involved in anything. I'm just gonna love everybody. Jesus goes, no, no, no. You're gonna need to like combine them. I need you to be both these things. Now, if you're thinking, you're going, ah, that's impossible. Nobody can combine them. I don't know. I think uh, the Hebrew midwives combine this. I think Moses' mom and Moses' sister combine them. I think Rosa Parks combined them. I think Dr. King combined them. I think there's lots of examples of people who have figured out how to follow Jesus incorporating both of these. But it didn't happen by accident. Uh, it happened because they decided there is a greater allegiance I have and I'm going to follow that. And when he was uh, reflecting on Jesus' words here, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said this about this passage. He said, Jesus reminds us that the good life combines the toughness of the serpent and the tenderness of the dove. To have serpent-like qualities devoid of dove-like qualities is to be passionless, mean, and selfish. We've met those people before. To have dove-like qualities without serpent-like qualities is to be sentimental, anemic, and aimless. We've seen plenty of those as well. And he says this, we must combine strongly marked antitheses. We must figure out how to be both of what Jesus said. We don't attack like a snake, but we think like a snake. And how do you do that? Well, it's because we're like a sheep among a bunch of wolves. And I wonder, would we be more bold in all of this if we could have a different perspective? We could see what God could see. Because I think when you and I see injustice, when we see something wrong, we go, what could I do? I'm just me, I'm just one person. I hope someone will make that better. But what if you and I actually had a different perspective? Do you know one of the coolest things I have found in following Jesus my life, through my whole life, and, and I have seen this in other people's lives as well, is that following Jesus allows you to see what others can't see. It's one of the coolest perks of being a Christian. Following Jesus allows you to see what other people can't see. You look at a situation and go, I think, I think God wants to do something here. And they go, oh no, that's hopeless. Give up, move on, that'll never change. And 
No, it's the Christians who go, no, I think Jesus wants to do something. And I think I'm gonna get involved. And I think I'm gonna do something. And I think if we rally together, it's, it's the Christians who can see more because following Jesus allows you to see what other people can't see. But we just have to change our perspective. Now, I wanna close with an image that hopefully gives you a way to think about this whole topic. Uh, I want you to imagine that you uh, are laying on your back at night and you're looking up into the night sky and you're watching the stars. And if you've ever done that, most of us probably have done that, uh, you know what it feels like to be stationary, to look up and you're watching the stars move if you, if you lay there over enough time and kind of see them move across the sky. It's incredible, it's relaxing, gives you all sorts of perspective. But that's our perspective here looking up. What, what if you could change the perspective? Well, there's one guy who's an astrophotographer, which I didn't even know was a thing, uh, and he has special gear where instead of the normal perspective of being grounded here, looking at the sky move, uh, he set up his camera equipment to be locked in on the Milky Way and to let the camera move accordingly to stay locked in on that. And what this produces is you can feel the earth rotate. It is a very bizarre feeling. Uh, and, and again, I wanna explain this to you because I wanna show you this, but at first you're gonna think that's like some weird special effects because we don't ever get this perspective. But if you change what you're looking at and you change it, then all of a sudden you're able to see things that no one else can see. Watch this. What if we were the ones who could see what no one else could see because we followed Jesus? I'll close with something Dr. King said. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I think the Christians, those who follow a guy named Jesus, should be the ones that can see this better than anyone else and are willing to ask the question, what is wrong and what do you want us to do about it? Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, may you use people like us, not the power brokers, not the influencers, just us and our issues and our flaws and, and our brokenness. And yet if we could just see what you see, if we could learn to see injustice from your eyes, we would dream differently. We would say yes to new opportunities. And so may we celebrate those who have come before us and have said yes to their moment and have faithfully brought change and, and, and been able to take down injustice around them. But as we celebrate them, may it not just be about a story in the past, but a story that you wanna keep telling through us today. May we be the ones who say yes to you, to, who open our eyes, even if we're in a position of comfort, to, to see what we would do and what we might do for you. May you use 
people like us, a church like us, a community like us, Christians like us, who say yes to you because we know that you see something that others may not see. And so would you give us a courage and a boldness to live this way in Jesus' name? And all God's people said, amen.